Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we spend some Bitcoin and save the world to accelerate to a singularity. But first up, here's the news. The good news is that the bionic eye invented by NICTA, the National Information Communications Technology of Australia organisation, has been implanted in volunteers for its first trials, and it works. In this first version, bionic eye users can make out doorways and shapes from a grid of 24 electrodes. Each person in the trial has been blind for over 10 years due to retinitis pigmentosa an inherited condition where the sight gets worse over time as the light-sensitive pigments in their eyes degrade. The people trialling the bionic eye have to be trained to rely on sight again and how to make sense of the images they can now see. They'll also have to learn to develop hand and eye coordination. The next device will be a higher resolution display that increases the number of electrodes from 24 to 256 and is due to be tested next year 2014. The bad news is that the incoming Australian Liberal Minority Government, in coalition with the National Party, have killed the ICT Centre for Excellence, which is the funding body for NICTA, in order to save money. As a result, NICTA will have to wind down its research programs. NICTA will no longer receive any federal government funding under the Liberal policy, which was hidden inside the budget costings submitted to the Treasury the day before the election. NICTA may continue to receive funding from individual state governments and the ARC, the Australian Research Council, but they'll have to find $42 million to continue innovating. NICTA can't appeal to the new incoming science minister because the incoming Liberal and National Party coalition government have sacked the entire science ministry, as well as the climate, age, disability and housing ministries. The new government's policy is to abolish all research they don't understand and think might be silly. The Arts Ministry duties have been taken over by the Attorney-General. Tony Abbott has titled himself Prime Minister for Women and has seen fit to promote the Minister for Sport into the Cabinet to contribute to the important decisions of government, like what game they should play next at lunchtime. If you've listened before, you'll know that I have a strong interest in futuristic technologies and ideas, from space engineering, to living a healthier and longer life, and accelerating the introduction of new ideas. This philosophy has been labelled transhumanism, that is, overcoming traditional human problems and indeed the human condition, of accelerating technological changes into a singularity with its benefits and dangers. 
I was asked recently about how I came to transhumanist thinking and what my personal views on transhumanism are. Let me share some of the ideas. Transhumanists, like our earliest ancestors, seek to transcend the limitations of the human body to delay death and to achieve wisdom. Transhumanism arose when people began to use science and technology to achieve these goals, instead of magic and spirituality. There's a lot of transhumanist themes in science fiction. Exploring my father's book collection at seven, I discovered his collection of science fiction classics amongst all the other genres he also collects, and then sought out more at the library. In those days, before the internet was widely available, I hungered for data, so I joined five separate libraries. I devoured their science fiction and science sections, and wrote about magnified intelligence, extremely long lifetimes, expanded abilities, space engineering, people who could transcend the human condition. Solving the world's problems, curing disease, ending poverty, finding peace between people, and exploring the universe. Transhumanists think big. I discovered philosophers like Robert Anton Wilson, who led me to Timothy Leary. Timothy Leary wasn't just researching psychedelic drugs, he wanted to transcend the human condition. In the 1970s, he coined the term SMILE. This is an acronym, S-M-I-L-E, for space migration, intelligence studying intelligence, and life extension. I found Alan Harrington's The Immortalist and read arguments for how the desire to live forever and the necessity for coping with mortality has warped our history, culture, mythology, and politics. I found a copy of The Prospects of Immortality by Robert Ettinger where he pointed out that freezing people to revive and heal them of the illness or injury that killed them was physically possible and technologically achievable, eventually. And that it was worth doing even before it had been proved to work, because the chances of you being revived if you're frozen are above zero, whereas if you're buried or cremated, the chances are exactly zero. I encountered the Extropians online in the late 1990s. They were really interesting people with really interesting ideas. Transhumanists believe that the extension and augmentation of human life and abilities through technological means is both achievable and desirable. I think it's already started in the developed world, but it's not evenly distributed. The lack of equality of access is slowing down the development of new technology and solutions that could give us a world of plenty for everyone. I recently saw Elysium. It's a film exploring the transhumanist morality of unevenly distributed life extension technology. In the story, humanity has developed technology to cure most illnesses and injury in minutes, using nanomachines. However, a wealthy elite have restricted access to citizens on their isolated city-state on a space station, even though they could afford to cure everyone in the world. I disagree with the vocal majority of transhumanists on a few things. The difference stems from the origin of transhumanist politics in the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment argued for democracy and individual rights. The French version of those ideas also pressed for egalitarianism and a strong democratic state, while the British and American versions were less egalitarian, less democratic, and more in favour of market freedom rather than individual freedom. The most prolific transhumanist writers often advocate market freedom above egalitarianism. They want to be allowed to transcend the human condition, to not be poor, to be healthy, to augment themselves, to become more than they are, but they're not too concerned about whether you do. That's your business. 
I consider it an emergency that the current ways of extending and augmenting human life are not evenly distributed around the world. It needs to be solved as quickly as possible. People are suffering and dying in ways that can be prevented. Clean water, sanitation, hygiene, smokeless cooking, free healthcare, free education, the kind of guaranteed minimum income that we have in Australia, electricity and the internet. All of these can extend human life up to twice what it was a hundred years ago and magnify human abilities to what they are without them. The difference between a literate and numerate person and an illiterate innumerate person is huge. It's like having superpowers. Add a good education in science and the humanities and you have the difference between a professional citizen and a peasant. Genetically the same, but with vastly different capabilities. For most of human history, literacy was confined to a very small elite, usually a priesthood. Even outside the priesthood, it was a separate profession of clerks who could read and write. The invention of universal free education is a major innovation whose consequences still haven't played out because it still hasn't reached all of humanity. It makes a difference, not just to the individual, but to their community and society. For most of human history, societies have had all the decision-making and problem-solving in the hands of the ruling elite, writing off everyone else as ignorant peasants. Our society and our organisations still reflect that dichotomy between a ruling elite and ignorant peasants, despite the fact that everybody is getting at least 12 years of education, and nobody in the first world is an ignorant peasant. Education and training are the strongest tools we've learned to increase the ability of human brains. And now we can all have access to all of human knowledge from network computers. The world is in trouble because it's still only a small handful of people making all the decisions and attempting to solve most of the problems. It's a huge burden. It's gotten better the more educated minds we can add to the problem solving. Imagine how much better the world could be with all 6 billion people contributing their educated brains to solving our problems. Their problems. Give them healthy bodies and information technology so they can share their information and thoughts and humanity has a much better chance of solving their big problems quickly enough. Poor people drive the population explosion that frightens biologists because poor people need to have more children. Most of their children die young from disease and without any social safety net, the parents need children to look after them when the diseases of ageing prevent them from working. In developed nations where everyone has access to enough food and healthcare, People choose to have less children, and often no children. The birth rate in wealthy countries like Australia has been shrinking for decades. So merely making everyone rich enough that their children rarely die, and that they're guaranteed an income when the diseases of old age prevent them from working, is enough on its own to solve the population crisis. You solve the labour problem of a reduced birth rate by allowing people the same freedom to travel across borders that we currently restrict to capital and owners of capital, who can move anywhere. If you allow people to travel as freely as money, then you solve the labour problem while we automate every job that a machine can do better than a human, while guaranteeing those who see their jobs replaced by machines have the guaranteed income that allows them to choose a meaningful life outside of their old, economically forced labour. Having brought free sanitation, healthcare, freedom from forced labour and education to everybody, Imagine if through studying what intelligence is, and how our brains work, we learn to raise everybody's IQ by 30 points. Effectively raising 30 points of IQ is the difference between someone who's not legally responsible for their actions, and someone 
who's an average citizen. It makes a real difference. Add those extra points on top of a legal moron, and then they can hold down a profession and make responsible decisions. Add it to an average person, and they're suddenly in the Mensa range of high intelligence. They're now bright. Add the same 30 points to brilliant people, and they become geniuses. Now we have all these highly intelligent and educated people with access to all of human knowledge, and all other humans, and you have an international community such as never existed on the face of the earth. To such a community of billions of connected, skilled, educated, gifted people, the world's problems will fall like dominoes, and things will get better. Not just better medical technology, but better organisations, communities and societies. We've barely scratched the surface of how to make the most of the brains we're born with. Developmental science shows us that a stimulating and safe environment allows the brain to reach its highest potential. Modern education and training techniques build on ancient traditions with insights from psychology and neurology to show us more effective and quicker ways to teach and train people. Professions that once required a four-year apprenticeship can be learned in a six-month course or less. Ancient skills like meditation are now widely available for anyone to learn, and they've been shown to improve brain functions like willpower. Ancient memory systems like mnemonics can make an enormous difference to how your memory works. A large number of singularitarians believe acceleration of knowledge, technology and change will only come from machine intelligence, because machine intelligence could design a smarter machine intelligence, and so on, until the machine intelligences are as far above humans as humans are above insects. I think they're wrong. I think acceleration doesn't need a million IQ points, and machines who can modify themselves to become smarter. To get us to a world of plenty, health and empowerment for all, we just need to start with the modest increase in IQ that sharing food, sanitation, education network computer brings, helped by the results of intelligence studying intelligence. The whole world, fed and educated and connected, will become smarter and wiser and eliminate the scarcity of resources that causes most of our wars and most of our crimes. That's my vision of the singularity. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Next up, Bitcoin for beginners. Shard Core and D from Workers Radio on Radio Skid Row get together to discuss the new anonymous online currency that will buy you a beer at the old Fitzroy in Woolloomooloo in inner city Sydney. Speaking of money, um, you're just kind of I've seen it around a little bit, but I must admit I haven't chased it uh, chased it up or anything. Uh, there's a thing called bitcoins. Hmm. Sorry, virtual sorry, currency. bitcoins, not not Kiwi bitcoins. Yeah, virtual currency. Virtual currency. Well, we're living in an age of virtual currency now, pretty much. Even in the gold market, it's virtual currency. People don't get their bit of gold. Yeah, true. You go and buy gold, but trading you don't certificate. really have it. Yeah, yeah. Which so. is crashing too, so maybe... Yeah, gold's slumping. Yeah, I saw Soros sold half of his um, EFTs and his um, position of gold. What are EFTs? Um, electronic fund positions, they're just like huh? his portfolio. Oh, okay. So he sold half of his gold? Half of his gold. Why? Probably of... because he's one step ahead of the game or setting the rules, and um, he knows that that's had its five minutes in the sun. Two or three years of a good 
bull market. Yep. Now no, they're heading back to a bear market. Yeah. Yeah. So bitcoins are a virtual currency. Um, hmm. Set up by the Winklevoss, the Winklevoss twins. Oh, they're main backers. Who set it up? It's very dodgy. It's supposedly uh. some Japanese university professor mm. or something, but the history of it gets very murky. We do, you don't actually know who's responsible for it. Give us a little rundown on what exactly Bitcoins is. Well, the, the Winklevoss boys, they've got a big investment in it, I think about $11 million worth. It's a virtual currency that anybody can mine, but the problem with mining it is it costs so much for your, your electricity and your computers to what do you make mean, it. What do you mean by mining? You don't go well, out and dig in the ground. No, digital mining, a bit like in the old World of Warcraft games or things, people could actually go foraging for gold. Yeah, yeah. Same principle. Your computer sits there and makes and runs an algorithm, and when the algorithm is right, it spits out one of these trading certificates, a Bitcoin. I think there's 60-odd retailers now who take it. Okay. And basically, you can then exchange that Bitcoin for US dollars, goods, whatever, wherever you can trade so, it. So you don't have to physically sit at the computer and like press buttons and just like, ting, no. ting, ting, mining, ding, you know, plus one. No, no, it, it'd be a bit like that when one comes up because it takes so long to run it, unless you've got supercomputers. Ah, okay. Like, there are computers out there that are just Bitcoin farm computers, and that's really? all they're doing is just sitting there pumping out these... So if you're getting this free money... Well, it's not free. They've worked out for you or me to do it. Unless you've got good investment and are in for the long haul, mm -hmm. it would cost us more in the electricity to, to make one to than run it the would computers. be worth. Well, especially when they crash the market of yeah. Bitcoin. Okay, because it's gone... It went up quite... Was over $220 Two or three days ago, or last, well, late last week. That's in the sh that's in shares. Per Bitcoin, it per would cost you two hundred and twenty dollars per coin. How long would it make? Well, how long would it take, like the average person, to get one Bitcoin if they're running it just on, like you know, their personal computer? Oh, I've heard, I've never tried to create one, but I've heard anywhere from three months to two years. What to get one Bitcoin to, to make one Bitcoin? Yeah. <laughs> But you're creating something out of nothing. If you can yeah. have your computer sitting there processing ones and zeros and in three months' time pop out a $225 trade certificate, energy to exchange certificate, you're creating something out of nothing. Yeah, it's, so you'd need like a massively powerful computer because you want to get some returns back. You want to be getting at least one a, a day. Well, the, the big players do have those computers. Mm. The big banks, and you'll see it, they're promoting it more and more as the next bubble. I love how like these ma we've got these huge supercomputers and um, like just they boggle the mind. Hmm. And what do they use them for? To trade imaginary um, stocks made up to, to gamble. It's gambling computers. It was a hacker <laughs> currency. They wanted to move away from a centrally administered or taxed currency. Mm. But the idea is flawed because as soon as you become have enough weight and people start taking notice, you can rest assured yeah. they're going to come and buy you up. Yeah, exactly. Well, so they go to war over it. Yeah, and they've <laughs> like they crashed their servers in Japan. A few people last week. So who, that who did? Oh, some anonymous. Oh, hooligans. some anonymous wink, wink. Hooligans. hooligans. Yeah, they um they basically brought the servers down, and there was so much trade happening. 
because people are buying into it, mm. that the servers couldn't cope and shut down. So they had to actually suspend the trade. Yeah. <laughs> and that's when they went from $220 to $40. Oh. They lost 60, 70% of their value. Damn. They got back up to 100. So it's very volatile. Is this like a sign of things to come, this whole virtual currency and like, um, you know, money mining, new wave, nouveau mining? Yeah, I don't even think it's things to come. It's here. Yeah. It's like gold. You buy into gold two years ago, everyone's, that's the safe haven. Mm. Things get a bit better and everyone dumps their gold and it's, it's a never-ending merry-go-round in the money market. How abstracted can we become when it comes to money? How far removed are we going to go? I mean, it sounds like we're getting pretty far now. We, we can run an algorithm um, computer program that makes you bitcoins. Um, that's, that's pretty much out of nothing, even though you're paying for it with, uh, electricity and stuff like that. But it's, it's very little effort. Yeah, same with, with real currency though. The bank, for very little effort, print out these bits of paper we all chase. Mm. It's not really real. It's not worth anything if people say, I'm not accepting that currency anymore. Mm. That's really strange. It's not real. <laughs> very It's weird. not real, baby. That's true. Damn. Yeah, so um, maybe don't buy into Bitcoins. Yeah, so you're getting them real cheap or mining them. Mining them. Because there is Bitcoins. another bubble. <laughs> oh, I love all these bubbles. There's so many of them. Oh, it's crazy. That was Shardcore and D talking about Bitcoin, the new electronic currency that's not backed by a bank or a nation. This discussion was originally broadcast on the Workers' Radio Show on Radio Skid Row in Marrickville on the 16th of April 2013. Workers Radio and Diffusion Science Radio have been exchanging stories. They play some diffusion stories of interest to them, and I play some of theirs I hope will be of interest to you. Workers Radio broadcasts between 6am and 9am Mondays and Tuesdays, and is hosted by Shard Core, sometimes joined by D and John August. Radio Skid Row broadcasts in Sydney on 88.9 FM on www.radioskidrow.org. And now this week's three-minute thesis from the UTS Science Faculty. Students have three minutes to explain their research to educated laymen with only one slide, for cash prizes and a chance at the Trans-Tasman competition in October 2013. Here's Joshua Condren and his research on real-time microscopy of surface chemical reactions. With the invention of high vacuum, scientists gained the equipment that could allow them to view materials at high magnification. Then with the, with, with the invention of the low, um, low vacuum electron microscope, scientists were then allowed to observe chemical reactions at these high magnifications. This effectively bridged the gap between centuries of knowledge gained at atmospheric, temp atmospheric conditions and those of high magnification. Um, my research is to look at these chemical reactions at high magnifications and in real time. So th this, this live time is key, as knowing the intermediate steps of a reaction can let us fully characterize a system which will allow us to uh, manipulate this system to achieve better products. On what the, the main system I'm looking at at the moment can be, is, um, can be seen in our cars, in the, ca the catalytic converters in our cars. The catalytic converter is needed because the, the, the um, com combustion of 
fuel in our engines causes a number of toxic gases. These include carbon monoxide, nitric oxides, and um, unburnt fuel. The, the catalytic converter contains a, a, a material coated in platinum, and this is normally made in a honeycomb shape. This shape is used to increase the, increase the surface area of the platinum while stopping a um, pressure increase or stopping um, a build-up of pressure. This platinum is important because it promotes the oxidation of carbon monoxide into carbon dioxide, which is significantly less toxic gas. So, um, so, my, my, um, so, so how does using an electro, image from an electron microscope compare to, um, compare, compare to a chemical reaction? So this happens, as you can see by the bottom right-hand picture, which shows a chemical reaction happening on a low-resolution um, microscope, showing that over a period of one minute, there is a significant change of the propagation of the wave. So my research is to look at this at closer to the atomic scale and to, um, and to understand the physics of how this works and then to use this to create, so, and then to, then to use this to, um, to use this on, on, on samples of deposits that we can make in arrays and then we can manipulate these arrays to form the catalytic properties that we want. Thank you. That was Joshua Condren with his three-minute thesis from the University of Technology, Sydney. You can find out more about the three-minute thesis competition at www.3minutethesis.org. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. And please like our Facebook page and leave a comment. Contributing to the show was Shard Core and D from Workers Radio on Radio Skid Row. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network to 2 Triple H and syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science 360 internet radio station in the US. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.